the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Many of you out there perhaps are uh, part-time gardeners or like to, uh, what's the word, not tweak? I'm trying to think, what is it, What is the proper, appropriate term here, Jarrell? You, you, you love to meddle around in the garden. <laughs> uh, your spouse might say occasionally killing plants. Uh, certainly that's, uh, that's one of my uh, badges that I wear none too proudly. But uh, you know, then again, you might have some luck and success once in a while. You certainly know that there are times and seasons when older plants, more mature plants, begin facing some growth challenges. Uh, seemingly, no matter how much water you feed them or how oftentimes you uh, turn them to make sure they're facing the light, uh, their leaves begin to get yellowed. Uh, the edges perhaps begin to, to grow brown. There is a lot less new growth, and the older growth, quite frankly, is looking dingy, tired, and worn out. So what do you do? Is there a way in which you can revitalize and bring new life to that plant and hope that it will um, somehow will carry on further? Well, one of the big methods is plants like that oftentimes become uh, root-bound, particularly when they're potted plants. And so it requires going in, uh, removing the potting uh, around them, uh, trimming the root, which sometimes can be a painful process, and then, of course, replanting that plant in new soil, fresh fertilizer, lots of water, lots of sunlight and the vast majority of times in fact that replanting process as time consuming and perhaps painful as it might be in shock to the plant initially so can be the long-term solution to giving that plant a new lease on life Let's think of that same analogy when it comes to churches and church planting. Does it sound familiar? A congregation that's been around for many, many years, many generations, and at the edges is starting to look sort of drab and dreary and tired. There is no new growth, and so oftentimes the decision comes, gee, is it time to just put that plant out of its, or that church, out of its misery, or are there things that we can do to replant that church in a similar fashion the way we do a replanting of a plant a house plant to give it a new lease on life well my next guest tonight i think would suggest the answer is absolutely so he is a gardener of sorts a missionary uh, author and um, the professor at uh, beeson divinity school in birmingham alabama he spent uh, years in bangkok thailand and uh, works as a, a church uh, an advisor in many respects helping churches dis- 
discover how a dying congregation can grow once again. The book is called Replant, How a Dying Church Can Grow Again. Dr. Mark Devine, great to have you on the program tonight. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. This is a, this is a painful process, isn't it? Uh, number one, I think oftentimes painful for congregations to admit uh, that they are, in fact, uh, facing a very uncertain future. It really can be, and um, uh, I really didn't set out to become sort of a, you know, a church a consultant or a fixer, but uh, once I became a professor and could no longer serve as a full-time pastor, I found myself really not knowing what to do with myself, and so I ended up becoming uh, an, in, uh, a serial interim pastor for churches that are without a pastor. And then after the first couple of those, I really found myself in a new uh, exciting ministry uh, with a growing mission field because 80% of churches in North America are declining. And I really found myself um, really looking at these churches very differently than it is just a way station for the next pastor, but trying to think, well, wait a minute, this church has been declining for so long, they've had one pastor after another. Is there something I can do in my unique position since I don't want to stay permanently, that might help this congregation grow again. And I haven't always been successful, but it's really been exciting uh, to try to help in these ways. You speak throughout the book of your experiences, specifically at um, Calvary Baptist Church. Let's talk a bit about that. Uh, This is a church that you describe as having been in its third decade of decline, and and certainly one of the big indicators that there was lots of trouble afoot. It went through the totality of eight pastors, four permanent, four interim, in just 10 years. That's, what, like a year and a half or so per pastor? That certainly doesn't bode well in terms of the healthiness of that church or (laughs) the very least the stick to it to this of those called the lead. I'm told that the average pastorate now, tenure of a a pastor in churches today in North America, hovers around two years. That's hard to believe. But um, it really is an indication of sort of the the pathology, the lack of vision, uh, and the difficulties. And what happens oftentimes in these churches is that after the first two or three pastors uh, stay a very short time and leave, um, the, the congregation itself lapses into a pattern of behavior that prevents it from being led. Inevitably, uh, highly motivated laypersons, often very well-meaning, begin to occupy leadership turf that really belongs to a pastor. And these congregations become, without even realizing it, virtually unleadable. And so for all the good intentions that many might have and the pockets of ministry that often exist in these churches, they're really, they've rendered themselves uh, resistant to any real visionary, uh, strong pastoral leadership. And usually until that uh, is changed, it usually is. Most of these churches never come back. Well, in, in all fairness, uh 
Dr. Devine, you, you speak in the book of, of the fact that there had been individuals that were in these positions, and I would imagine to the greatest degree, many of them um, out of necessity. When we look at that high degree of turnover, I mean, suddenly from transitioning from one pastor to another, there are areas of need and care within uh, the greater life and body of the church and pastoral ministry that need time and need attention. And so uh, it would seem like a lot of these folks might have stepped into those positions, uh, probably of, of good heart and will. But then uh, what are you suggesting? Something happens along the way where they they kind of uh, dig their heels in and suddenly it, it moves from here's a, a deacon so-and-so or sister sus and such to God bless her is willing to step in while we're in the middle of a, a crisis here. Pastor's left. We've got an intern pastor who's trying to get the lay of the land. And so they're willing to come in and help out. And then what? It turns into uh, suddenly from um, good-hearted ministry to taking advantage of personal perks and privileges? A lot of the decisions that a pastor might make or lead the congregation to make end up being made by powerful lay people. And they get used to doing that, and they like to do it. And once a congregation sees pastors come and go quickly a few times, they they are slow to treat the next pastor as though he will be around for, a, for very long. And therefore, his ability to gain their trust and lead is, uh, is greatly diminished. And then if a pastor comes in who's bound and determined to leave, then he faces resistance with entrenched sort of turf, uh, uh, turf battles where various people have staked out some turf that uh, they see as theirs and they're protective of it. But as long as the pastor can't lead... Uh, you know, if he, if he can't have influence on that turf, then he really can't lead the congregation, and these pastors eventually give up and, and they go. If you've just joined the conversation, we're, we're talking about a lot of the principles that gardeners use in bringing new life to a dying plant by replanting it. We're all familiar with the concept of church planting. What about the concept of church replanting? Some lessons on how a dying church can grow again. Dr. Mark Devine with us tonight. Maybe your church is going through some of this. Maybe you have individuals in your church that, as Dr. Devine suggests, have stepped in to help out during difficult times and suddenly now are intentionally or otherwise engaged in making decisions and taking on areas of authority, quite frankly, biblically, belong to the pastor, but out of emergency or short-term necessity, they have taken. And suddenly now it's gone from, let me step in to help out, to essentially a, a usurping of position, authority, and spiritual responsibility that ultimately does not bode well for the life of that church. If you're in that kind of circumstance, you may want to just simply eavesdrop on our conversation. Maybe you want to dive a little bit deeper, and uh, I can understand not wanting to get out on the radio and uh, reveal your name or the church that you're involved with, but time out. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Dr. Mark Devine with us tonight, a look at replant, how a dying church can grow again. He had such an experience. You had served as a missionary in, in Thailand. At what point and how, or what was the process, uh, Dr. Devine, where they, they called you to uh, First Calvary, and when you got there, what kind of a shape did you find the place in? Well, I was just available uh, to serve as a supply preacher for churches that did not have a pastor or an interim pastor. And uh, there were people who knew that I had helped a troubling church, and they recommended me to this congregation. And I had a meeting with two of the leading lay uh, leaders there, and they they talked a really strong game of we need leadership. They were they were down to around oh 150 or so in a sanctuary, beautiful sanctuary that would seat 600. It looked like a little Spurgeon's Tabernacle plunked down in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, but once I got in there, I realized that, that this church was virtually unleadable. And so they talked about leadership, but really they, they lapsed into a state where they really uh, treated pastors as an employee with discreet duties. You know, preach a sermon, uh, do the wedding, do the funeral, do some pastoral care. But really, leadership was not on the cards at all. And I began to think about that, pray about that, and dream about, was there, is there a way that this congregation uh, could reverse its decline and start to reach people for Christ in that neighborhood again. In your book, you refer to them as members of the of the lay cartel, which I thought was brilliant. Uh, there is the sense of, of really sabotaging pastoral leadership because they've essentially usurped pastoral responsibility and authority. And we hear this every once in a while, particularly seems to be uh, an excuse or pretext by so-called megachurches where we wish to have, a, uh, there's an administrative pastor, there's a pastoral pastor, there's the preaching pastor, uh, and, and we've divided the duties up so much so that it doesn't, at the end of the day, seem to be one individual that is accountable to God or, or responsible for anything, and then all this little laity running around as if they're controlling a, a, a small corporation or miniature fiefdom. One of the, the developments that you see in many of these uh, these historic churches that are in decline is that um, they will uh, resist on the basis, the stated basis, that they are protecting a great tradition. And that was one of the means by which they thwarted attempts to lead at First Calvary. But one of the most paradoxical and surprising things that happened uh, in Kansas City at this church is that I began to study the history of the church. I found that they had taken radical decisions many times that were risky, that, that required a lot of faith, that, had res that were made in order to make the changes needed to advance the gospel. And so when I came to them with the, you know, the notion that we might consider joining with another congregation that had demonstrated uh, leadership and effectiveness in a cultural context just like ours, and they would provide the leadership, uh, I was able to take their history and say, if we face this opportunity 
according to our tradition, we will be open to significant change. And it kind of turned the tables on the, you know, the self-appointed protectors of the tradition at that church. And, you know, I don't wish to, I want to get in trouble here with listeners and, and seem to come off as if I, I have utter disregard for tradition or uh, a sense of uh, spiritual legacy or history. But at the end of the day, as we, as we measure it purely by the yardstick of Scripture, I mean, uh, am I wrong in saying that when we kind of distill it all down, it comes to a, a couple of basic uh, principles here, um, certainly the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, disciples evangelism I mean that that's kind of the uh, the primary role of the church and all of that seems to be very forward-looking I I I know that the Lord certainly is appreciative if a church has had a history of uh, you know having great men preaching in pulpits and many have been run one to Christ down through the decades or the centuries but uh, why do I have a lingering sense of sort of a um, okay and so what have you done for me lately as part of of the way <laughs> <laughs> the Lord himself might uh, might judge a church like that. Well, the irony here was that I led the church to look forward by looking back, just like you did. You reached backward to the Bible to to talk about what churches should do now. And that's what I did with this congregation. They had had a tradition of doing some really risky uh, but but doctrinally sound, faith-infused things in their past. And so the people who were, who were touting themselves as the protectors of the tradition really weren't protecting the tradition. They were protecting recent uh, turf that they had occupied and the way decisions had been made over the last 20 years. But when you looked at what had been happening over the last century, then that was a different kind of tradition. And you could find there many times in the church's history where they had made discipleship and evangelism and care for those who are hurting front and center. And so it wasn't a matter of don't look back, just look forward. There's like one passage in the Bible that says that, and people uh, gloss over the hundreds of passages where God says, remember, don't forget, remember, don't forget. And so the problem was not that they were looking back and remembering, but they weren't looking back far enough, deep enough, they weren't remembering the right things, and then facing the present and the future on the basis of the best of their past. There's a pastor right now in Chicago who's helping restart churches the way I did, and one of the things he says that I love is that when we restart churches, we don't erase their history. We have a shared history. But if that history is rooted in gospel advance, then they will not dig in and become a dysfunctional church that resists leadership. Well, and again, I, I have no objection to, to history. In fact, I'm a, a tremendous fan of it, and I believe standing on a, a, a tradition and a, a sense of uh, uh, connectedness, if you will, uh, down through the generations, I think that's wonderful and to be applauded and, and to be stood upon. But you stand on that foundation and that rich history that should then drive 
drive you and compel you to move forward, not to become paralyzed in simply saying, gee, look how great we used to be, uh, that, that never allows you to then have that forward-looking sense in terms of, you know, our, our, our relationship with Christ is one that continues to grow and expand. Uh, so, too, ought that process of outreach and evangelism and discipleship, as we mentioned. And so uh, that sitting of the history and allowing ourselves to become paralyzed where we're just stuck in it, isn't that largely what a lot of these churches wind up dying from? That's exactly what they die from. And uh, so that and that is what I talked to them about. But now what I didn't tell them is that they're dying because they care about the tradition. Actually, what I did was expand their view of tradition, which then shamed them when they uh, didn't put the advance of the gospel first. And so I kind of uh, claim the tradition ground rather than ceding it to those who were who had a selective view of it. And to the newer congregations, even if they're growing, let's say a new uh, church, uh, new leadership comes in and the church starts to grow, if they treat the past with uh, a case sarah sarah or just something that's you know good for historical, you know trivial pursuit, then they end up with a with a maybe a a temporary you know temporary life and and growth. But it ends up being very, very shallow because they don't, they don't, they don't really grasp what they've been bequeathed uh, uh, from the past. And so I think there's a message about the past that both sides tend to be getting wrong. Mm. Uh, and uh, and the, the the biggest light that shines on that is that some of those who want to be sort of fiercely forward-looking, they keep turning back to uh, the reformers, turning back to the, to the Bible, and I want to say, okay, now you're, now you're talking my language. So we have to be cautious in finding that balance because some are oftentimes um, uh, too reticent to, to move or look forward and they wish to just singularly cling to the past and others are too rapid or in a rush to, to dispense with the past in the process of moving forward and there's something to be said about the mixture of the two. Let's take a time out on that point. Dr. Mark Devine is with us. We are talking about church replanting, what that means, what that looks like, what that might mean to you and your congregation. Stay with us. We'll time out, update on traffic, then back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the conversation with Dr. Mark Devine. Let's get into some of your calls. We're talking about church replanting. We'll head off first to Hayward. Paul, good afternoon. Welcome. You're on KFAX with Dr. Mark Devine. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. I've been um, checking out a lot of churches. I grew up in the Bay Area, grew up in a real large church, and have been looking around uh, and visiting churches for the last 10 years or so. And I'm seeing one thing that's common in because they are declining. And I'm asking you, uh, Pastor, if, if you see this. Uh, one of the churches that I, I attend regularly has about 1,200 people going there. And on one Sunday, the pastor asked by a raise of hands of how many people in 2013 had led anybody to the Lord. Less than 12 hands went up out of over 400 people. So what I'm starting to understand with this is that uh, people are going to uh, ch- church as if they are 
you know, out of duty. They're getting jobs. They're, 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 uh, uh, sacred cow ministries that they occupy for 25 years and won't let anybody in. And, and they're not learning to evangelize. And so <clears throat> this church that I've been attending now for nearly three years, uh, I've, I haven't been invited to one person's house yet, uh, or out to lunch. Um, and they had the glad handing thing and, and the you know shaking the hands, get up and shake your neighbor's hands, all that stuff. But but they're not teaching what Paul said about um, uh, the gift of hospitality. Mm. And the gift of hospitality, I think, is what's missing in the churches because if a pastor does leave a church all of a sudden, you know, for whatever reason, he dies. You know, whatever reason. The church should be able to maintain itself because the people have already learned how to really be the, a family as well as be a family to their, their neighbors and their co-workers. In most cases, most neighbors don't even know a Christian lives next door. They've not, they've not, they're not being taught hospitality. So what, what do you see? Do you see that as being something? Wow, some really good observations. What about that, Dr. Devine? I want to tout a, a church in Columbus, Ohio, uh, related to this issue. It's called Xenos. And my uh, uh, youngest son is a is a he's a student in in Columbus, and he's a member of that church. And they, for many years, have made discipleship uh, the heart and center of what they want to be about. They don't want anything to distract them from it. And it's a remarkable thing. And so they're they're most strong in the ways that that this church that you've spoken of uh, is weak. And I will say this, the trend is that nominal Christianity is going to weaken, and and the church is is losing market share, but the churches that survive uh, and thrive in this new environment are going to be stronger. And because people are not going to use their time to be involved in, in, in churches uh, that are not really meaningful and relevant to them. And I, but I certainly believe that one of the great weaknesses is just what you've spoken about, and that is, can, can disciples make other disciples? Well, therein goes a real important key, because whether you talk about a church learning what hospitality is or, or the keys to evangelism, I mean, doesn't this really come down to the matter of, of a lack of real proper discipleship? I mean, how many people show up to church every Sunday and they're kind of there out of, out of duty or out of habit or a sense of obligation, and yet they, they don't know a lot about the Savior that they allege to serve and have never had the experience of ever sharing their faith with anyone. Absolutely, but I do think that kind of thing is peaking because fewer and fewer people are willing to do that anymore. And so uh, people who are in that state, they they are dropping out of church uh, in, in droves. I'm finding some really exciting things happening with pastors who are in their 40s uh, that I, you know, were my students uh, 20 years ago, and uh, they're they're planting and building churches that are really a great co- contrast in these in these areas. And I'm so I'm really quite hopeful uh, that we're going to see uh, we're, we're going to see stronger churches uh, in these areas in the future. You are you getting a sense that 
the emphasis on, and I'm going to meddle here for a moment, uh, one of the things that I'm pretty good at. <laughs> uh, there's been such an emphasis on so-called uh, church growth seminars, seeker-sensitive churches. It seems as if we have to have a plan and formula, most of which comes down to simply good entertainment, or not so good, uh, as a means of increasing the size of our church, which a lot of pastors, if they're honest about it, realize we're really only increasing the church by shifting the sheep from one pasture to another. Are you suggesting then that you're starting to see a trend away from that and more back toward genuine discipleship? genuine evangelism, genuine church growth? Yes, and I, I believe that, um, you know, the, the church growth movement, beginning with seeker-sensitive and then uh, purpose-driven uh, and, and various things, that really the church growth movement has morphed and has been chastened. Uh, Bill Hybels himself, you know, uh, uh, launched a survey and, and an analysis of what was happening at his church, and he came out and said that all the problems that you decided are real, they are happening, and so this notion of um, sort of figuring out what the people can take and tailoring your sermons to it and then try to do the discipleship in some other room in the church is really not working. And so nowadays, I think that you really... Knowing the size of a church doesn't tell you that much about it. Uh, as a serial interim pastor, that's what I'm seeing. That churches are very different. There's a lot of trial and error going on, and that uh, a lot has been learned uh, about uh, the ineffectiveness of watering anything down. And and perhaps the the big lesson here needs to be unlearning of what we thought were so-called experts of teaching us how to do church right, and relearning the fact that all the keys that are necessary are right there in front of us. It's a little book. In fact, it's sold pretty well, I understand. If you're in the right spot, you even know the author personally. Uh, the book, of course, is called The Bible. Another one that I might recommend, uh, secondary to that, that's not a bad one either, particularly on this topic, is the one written by Dr. Mark Devine, Replants, How a Dying Church Can Grow Again. And uh, we appreciate the insights into this uh, very complicated topic. And uh, Dr. Devine, hopefully we can persuade you to come back for more and we can dive a little bit deeper. And uh, again, our thanks to Dr. Mark Devine. The book, by the way, available through David C. Cook Publications or at uh, the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. In Hebrews 4, the writer reminds us of the words of David. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. By verse 9, he talks about rest for the people of God, a Sabbath rest, and exhorts us to labor or strive to enter into that rest. Well, as all of us know, modern living in the West, particularly here in the San Francisco Bay Area region, makes Sabbath rest, resting in Him, more and more elusive and challenging. And connecting with God at a deeper level, a communion level, more important and perhaps harder to achieve for many, with the distractions and noise of life that make things like prayer, meditation on His Word, and a sense of God's quiet presence something we have to strive for. 
Well, there's a wonderful property here in the San Francisco Bay region of Northern California that I think might very well provide the kind of atmosphere that can help make that process of laboring to enter into his rest so much easier. Joining me now on the program is Pamela Prime. Pamela is a best-selling author, and she is also one of the owners of Two Bears Dancing. And uh, welcome to the program, Pamela. Thank you, Craig. It's lovely to be with you today. We'll talk in a moment about the the wonderful property that you have available down uh, along the uh, Sonora region of California, close to Yosemite. But before we get to details on that, let's speak for a moment about this whole issue. Boy, you know, I, I think of the notion of even just quiet time, trying to disconnect turn the cell phone off, walk away from the computer, be able to meditate on God's Word, just get some lone time with God. For a lot of people, that sounds very inviting, but almost impossible to do. Well, I would would agree with you. Uh, it's, It's not only difficult in terms of how busy we are, but it's difficult in terms of what it means for us to quiet down. And sometimes I think we put too much pressure on ourselves. And if, if we would just simply walk out the front door and go for a five-minute walk and just be aware of the beauty that surrounds us that God has blessed us with and give thanks for that five minutes, I think we've entered into a, a really remarkable experience of prayer. And we don't give ourselves credit for it. And the other thing, too, I think oftentimes we we fail to acknowledge the fact that, like any relationship, whether we're talking about a vertical relationship with God or a horizontal relationship with our spouse, our children, family members, friends, whatever, uh, it takes communication. It takes time to make that happen. And, and, And can you imagine what kind of a relationship would the average husband and wife have if you were trying to engage in communication in the middle of, I don't know, a Levi's Stadium surrounded by 50,000 people making noise and cheering and yelling and everything else, after a while you would say, there's so much noise going on here, I can't concentrate on what you and I are trying to communicate because of all of the distractions taking place. And I guess to a great degree, that kind of describes of what's happening on happening in our relationship with God. People say, well, I don't, I don't really feel that close. Well, is it any wonder with so much noise around us that kind of blocks or, or impedes the ability to enter into that kind of communication? Well, I think that's really true. I also think that sometimes we're fearful of entering into a deep relationship with God, as we are fearful of entering into a deep relationship with our loved ones. Uh, It's a strange phenomenon, really, but we have often such a fear of uh, rejection or of not being worthy or of hearing something that we really are afraid of hearing. Yeah, if God gets to know us as we really are, uh, he might not like us very well. And, of course, we fail to recognize the fact he already knows us. <laughs> uh, well, that's right. And God, and God does know, know us as we really are and is absolutely nuts about us and is always, you know, <laughs> trailing after us, uh, inviting us to come closer and to trust and to risk and to be present and to allow God to fill us with love. Our life experience could be so much richer uh, if we would just take the advice of the writer in Hebrews and, and recognize that sometimes it takes extra effort. We have to, as you say, step outside the front door for a moment and uh, get away from the din and the noise, whether it's you know a five-minute break in the backyard to look at the bee running around collecting a, a little bit of pollen here and there or admiring God's handiwork in the rows, whatever it might be, up to and including sometimes the nose 
notion where we really need a full, complete disconnect, that opportunity to sort of recharge our spiritual batteries and, and disconnect from the constant demand on our attention and time from everything that is electronic and the working world and so forth, and sometimes getting away to a spot that better fosters the ability to engage in that level of, of prayerful meditation and communion with God is really the answer. And toward that end, you have an absolutely spectacular five-acre piece of property. I mentioned earlier it's down toward um, Yosemite. I think you're about an hour outside of Yosemite. You call it Two Bears Dancing. Tell us a bit about this wonderful retreat. Well, you know, when you talk about going to some place that's quiet, that's Two Bears Dancing. It's it's five acres, which I think if you're living in the middle of the city is a lot. But uh, this property is somehow very... Um, in a way, secret from what's around it. It's very protected and private, and it's very peaceful. So <clears throat> people will walk the property. There's a lovely path that goes around the property. And just that walk, again, you know, being out in nature and, and admiring the magnificence of God, there's a beautiful uh, little lake there and um, water lilies and beautiful flowers around it and frogs and birds and all the things that you'd find in nature. So it's very difficult to uh, to stay busy in your head when you're so busy looking at all the beauty. Suddenly you're, you're shifted into a whole new level of consciousness and people come away saying things like, oh, I feel so much more peaceful or this place is magical and we find it that way as well. It's uh, when we're not there, we're, we miss it very much. We love to go up and um, and be there and enjoy the beauty that's there. It's remarkable, uh, David Kirkpatrick, how man will build uh, cathedrals as a place of sanctuary for us to be able to commune with God, but none of them quite achieve the same level of splendor as the cathedral that God has already provided for us. In this case here, the retreat center there at uh, Two Bears Dancing uh, with the redwoods and the trees and the lake and everything else. It, it, it's really hard to compete with cement and glass, isn't it? <laughs> it certainly is. We put a lot of time and effort into building up the buildings, but the property comes with the most incredible collection of really tall trees and uh, uh, natural uh, plants as well as the more decorative ones we've planted. So it, it really... The, the value of the property is in the property uh, even more than uh, all of the effort that we've put into the house, the outbuildings, the guest quarters, the chapel, all the things that are on the property. I would imagine many people eavesdropping on our conversation right now who immediately connect with this notion of the struggle that it is to get away and really enter into a labor to enter into God's rest and then beginning to think about, yeah, you know, sometimes just breaking away from the din and noise of city life and getting away to a retreat place like Two Bears Dancing would be wonderful. And gee, we wish that our church or our ministry ministry organization had such a property and toward that end in fact two bears dancing is available currently on the market spend a moment if you would david and kind of walk us through many of the amenities that are there there is a a, a principal main house there and then a number of other outbuildings kind of walk us through all the two bears dancing has to offer well the principal house has about four thousand square feet it has two kitchens uh one for guests one 
for uh, us. Uh, it has uh, some special features like uh, locally done rock work that's really quite spectacular. It has a sauna. Um, it has a home theater and library. Uh, it has built-in uh, uh, Ethernet networking. Uh, but then we have a treehouse, uh, uh, guest quarters that are 23 feet above the stream, uh, high up in the nestled high up in the trees. That uh, many people who come find that the most incredible meditation uh, location, as well as a place for it, it has a bed and a, a toilet and sink and that sort of thing. Uh, so one of the guest quarters is a, a treehouse up in the air. Another guest quarters floats on the lake. It's a, a lake house that, again, has a, a spacious bedroom with uh, a fireplace for warmth. It has uh, uh, a, a toilet and a sink. Uh, has uh, the basic amenities. Uh, the, the formal shower for guests is back in the main house in the guest quarters there, but uh, uh, those two outbuildings are really quite unique. Then there's what we call uh, our mother's chapel. It's, it's a place that we've used for healing circles and for workshops uh, with a spectacular view of the lake, but it's on the ground uh, at the edge of the lake. In addition, there are a couple of storage outbuildings, and then there's what we call the writer's cottage down at the end of the lake, a place where uh, there, there is sleeping quarters, but it's mostly set up to give a place for isolation, contemplation, perhaps meditation, uh, and perhaps used for writing. We originally moved up to the mountains because my wife wanted to write, and she wrote a book, and is working on another and it's it's a location that allows you to pull out of everyday life and of course in addition to those amenities i understand you've also got a fire pit uh there are meditation benches around the property some wonderful sculptures as you referred to and sites for people to put up tents so it really it while it's not a facility that will accommodate a thousand people you probably don't want that that probably isn't very conducive to the kind of atmosphere that we're talking about creating when you're looking for a spiritual getaway or a spiritual retreat but in terms of what this five acre property has to offer again on the sonora path and I understand, Pamela, that uh, you're just about an hour outside of Yosemite. So uh, as a retreat facility, boy, for somebody really wanting to have kind of the complete deal where you could be away at the retreat and maybe break away for a day and head down to go experience Yosemite and come back again, it really is ideally situated in terms of its location, isn't it? Well, it is. Um, it's also at the foot of the Sonora Pass, which a lot of people aren't familiar with, but it has some of the most beautiful hiking trails. And even just to ride over the pass is a wonderful experience. And we're a mile from the grocery store, which actually is a wonderful little grocery store. So even though it's isolated in some ways, it's very um, available in, in many other ways to lots of, lots of different things to do and see and and uh, it's convenient. And, of course, this property is available right now. So maybe your ministry organization or church has been contemplating taking your ministry to the next level by incorporating a retreat facility. This is really it. 
If you want to find out more, you can simply log on to twobearsdancing.info to get more information, get a chance to see the property, view the list of all the amenities, and then, of course, if you'd like, make an appointment to go down and actually view the property in person. Again, information available on the web at Two Bears Dancing. That's two spelled out, T-W-O, twobearsdancing.info. That's twobearsdancing.info. And I'd like to thank author Pamela Prime and David Kirkpatrick for that update on this edition of Lifeline. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.